Good morning, everyone. And good to be together. I trust you've already already been encouraged just as we've worshiped the Lord in song together. Um, I know for me, just uh, even though I was leading, uh, leading occasionally now, uh, and enjoy it, um, but even as I was leading, um, just was blessed to sing with you and, and then praying along with Toby as well. Just so grateful to be together in the Lord's presence. Um, my name is Paul Buckley. If you're a guest, welcome. We're glad you're with us. We pray God's blessing on you and on everyone here. We are finishing up our series uh, today, actually, in the book of Exodus. Uh, we've been going through this book for a little while, so we'll be in the last chapters, chapters 35 to 40. We won't read all of the content, but we will go over uh, kind of what the content is aimed at. Um, so as you're turning there, um, let me uh, ask you if you've ever used the expression, the good old days. I remember the good old days. Yeah, and it, it probably, you know, is proportional to how old you are, right? The older you get, the more likely you are to use that word. And, and um, maybe you've used it recently as you've watched the turmoil of our culture, um, thinking about the good old days perhaps in some way, and, and ironically, uh, much of what's going on in our culture as well is because there are aspects of, about the good old days that weren't so good, right? And people uh, in, in many ways want to change those things, and in many ways a good thing, of course. Um, so there's truth on both sides here. We need wisdom. We can pray for our leaders to know what the good is and to bring us to the good days ahead. Ultimately, I think that's what we want, right? It's not so much just reminiscing, oh, the good old days, you know, when when we did this or that, uh, we are looking for the good days ahead. And, and, um, and sometimes, you know, the, that's stirred up by just remembering good aspects. I remember some good old days in my life. Uh, not that today isn't good, and this season of, of my life is very blessed, but I, I think about sometimes the good old days when our kids were little. Um, and though back in those days, I probably didn't always feel like they were the good old days <laughs> because it can be hectic, but there were just things, you know, that... Uh, that season of life, there was a peacefulness, a simplicity, um, and just being together. And, and that season of our life as well, we were in a, a good church, and there just were many things uh, that were good. And so I look back sometimes and think about that. But ultimately, it's not so much, you know, going back. That's the danger in the good old days, right? Is you can end up reminiscing and wanting to live there. And you can also get a wrong picture of what the good old days ultimately are. We need a standard for what the good old days really ought to be. Um, and it shouldn't be just merely our reminiscing, but something better. And God gives us something better. And in this section of Scripture in particular, God is granting us, giving us a benchmark, a standard to look at in the, in the form of this whole storyline, um, this, this standard to look at to understand what the good old days look like. And so we're going to read this uh, section of Scripture, portions of this section, to learn what it should be. And, and so the title of the message is, As It Should Be. And we will take time to look at what it looks like when it is as it should be and learn from God's Word. But let's pray, because we need God's help. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Exodus 35-40. to 40, that You have captured uh, what went on and conveyed it in such a way and preserved it for us today that we can benefit from the truth here. But more than that, Lord, it's not just the content, it's the fact that this is your living word. 
And Lord, you minister to us. You speak life and truth through your word. And we need to learn. We need to learn about what it looks like when it is as it should be. And we need to be transformed in our hearts as well. We want to be changed in who we are and how we live from your living word. So come now, Holy Spirit, and dwell with us. Empower me to serve you and your desire to make the word known to transform lives and to glorify the Father and the Son. Thank you so much. We look forward to what you'll do as your word is proclaimed today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read in chapter 35 um, and following as it talks about uh, the work that went on. Chapter 35, verses 1 through 19. It says, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days... Work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine Twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins and goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded the tabernacle, its tent, and its covering, its hooks, and its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles, and all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps, and the oil for the light, and the altar of incense with its poles, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door, and the door of the tabernacle, the altar, a burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gates of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments for his sons for their service as priests. And then going down to chapter 39, verse 32, Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. This is the concluding section, an introduction to it, in the book of Exodus. This is really a conclusion to the entire book and all that's been going on. And it's setting before us, as I said, a picture of what things look like as they should be. We're going to go through this and we're going to learn four different things um, about being as it it should be. Really, it's about what God's people look like when they are as they should be. So first, we're going to see how we are to be a forgiven people. We are to be a generous people, an obedient people, and a people of His presence. That's the picture that's painted here from these chapters. So first, when things are as they should be, we live as a forgiven people. You just heard me read through a detailed description of the tabernacle. And, and maybe in your first time reading through Exodus, this would, would have been my experience, not just my first time, but multiple times, is the thought, why all this detail and why is it repeated? 
We already went through all this stuff earlier on. Moses was up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, and God told him to build it and do it all these, all these things for it. And, and He told us the reason, of course, ultimately, so that God could dwell among His people. But all those details and all the things that they represented, that, that was covered earlier. Why, why go over it again? What's the repetition for? Well, if you remember what happened earlier in earlier chapters, chapters 25 all the way up to chapter 30, 31, 32, was Moses was up on the mountain, right? And he was in the Lord's presence and the Lord gave all that instruction. And it all sounded really good. And it was all about God dwelling in the presence of His people. The people dwelling in God's presence. It sounded really good, but something happened while Moses was away. The people lost faith. And their, their challenge with Moses being away said, what's happened to this guy? We need gods to lead us to worship and to lead us onward. We need, a, we need the gods who led us out of Egypt. And so they took the gold from their earrings and they made a golden calf. They worshipped the golden calf. So Moses came down uh, and found this ultimate failure going on. It was terrible. So all this detail, then the golden calf. And then we, read, uh, we learned about last week, there's redemption, right? So there's the golden calf versus the glory of God. And so they realize, they repent, they realize we need the glory of God. Please, Lord, don't abandon us. We want you with us. We need your glory. Moses says, show me your glory. He's desperate, and the people of God are desperate. And so those are opposed to each other or contrasted, the golden calf versus the glory of God. And then we go into our section of Scripture. And it goes back to the same stuff that had been told Moses on the mountain, but it's done in actually an interesting way. And if you do a little bit of analysis um, in this section of scripture, some literary analysis, and I know I, when that I hear that word, it brings bad memories to my mind. Of like, I think third grade was when I first learned how to do sentence structuring, diagramming. Do you guys remember that? And I never liked it, and now it's what I do for a living because I have to diagram God's word and, and look at grammar because that helps us understand. Um, and if we look at the, the, we do an analysis, and if we cheat a little bit and rely on some really smart guys, the guys that wrote the book Dig Deeper and Dig Even Deeper, they came up with this structure. And you see A, B, C, D, E, and then D, C, B, A, backwards, right? Um, this structure is in the shape of kind of like an X, at least the one half of the X. And so people call it a chiasm, because that's the Greek letter that looks like an X. Um, and there's a lot of chiasms in, script, in Scripture where things are ordered in a way where they start and you follow the plot line and then it hits a point and then you back out of the plot line. So the, there's parallels. And so if you read through this section of Scripture, you see this chiasm. So uh, chapter 25, it's about the presence of God, right? So God wants to dwell with His people. Chapter 25 into 31, instructions are given for the tabernacle. We spent time on that, remember, right? The tabernacle is about God's presence dwelling and His provision so He can dwell there with the sacrifices, with the, the incense representing prayer, and so forth. And then he talked about the Sabbath, this special day that would set apart God's people, uh, that would be an expression of worship and dependence on God versus self-sufficiency and self-focus. So the Sabbath is important. talks about the Sabbath. And then the tablets of the law are talked about. Moses gets these wonderful tablets. But then he comes down the mountain and he finds them worshiping a false god. And that's a pivot point in the storyline. And you know the story there. God brings 
uh, judgment on the, the perpetrators, discipline on all His people. Then there's repentance. God says, I'm not going to go with you. They say, Lord, please. We don't want to go. We don't want to do this thing if you're not with us. It's ultimately about you. So they turn away from the golden calf and turn towards the true God and His glory. That's a pivot point in the storyline. And, and the structure here makes that really evident. So then it backs up and uh, it talks about the tablets of the law and then the Sabbath again and then instructions on the tabernacle. We read some of that. And then the presence of God will get there at the end. So it's backing out the same thing. And, but now, after that pivot point, it's done in a different way. It's the actual building of the tabernacle. Uh, it's the actual building of the tabernacle so the presence of God can be with them. Before it was just instructions, then failure. Failure, repentance, and now it's actually happening. So this is a structure here. It's, it's as it happened, but the way it's recorded in, in Scripture is meant to focus on this pivot point of the golden calf and then the glory of God. So I tell you that because that gives us the clue about how we ought to understand ourselves. As, as this story continues in chapters 35 to 40, it's laying out a picture of, of God's people where they're, where they're doing they're as they should be. And it, the pivot point is the golden calf and the glory of God. And so that teaches us, teaches Israel at the time, and it teaches us something really important. That we are to live as a forgiven people. We are to understand that this is, marks us. We, we don't come to God as a people that are perfect and righteous and everything's good. When, if things are going to be as they should be, it starts out with forgiveness. It starts out with the God of mercy and grace who loves to forgive. It starts out with us being a forgiven people and living in that forgiviness. It's interesting in the storyline in that chiasm structure, uh, it's a pivot point. It's not a terminus. It's not an end. It's not a conclusion. It's a pivot point. And, and that's instructive for us personally. Your failures, your sins, your struggles are not meant to be a terminus. They're not to meant to be the end point. Your failure happens and that, that's the end of everything. Our God is a God of forgiveness and redemption. And so our failures are a pivot point as we turn from them to the, the God of glory and depend on Him and live the new life in Him in our forgiveness and in this new relationship. So this is instructing by the, the structure how we ought to think of ourselves, how we ought to see ourselves as God's people. We are first a forgiven people. This is so important. And it's so important that we understand this is first. And it's so important that we see our failures this way as a pivot point. We turn from them to God in Christ. So may we be a forgiven people. May we see ourselves that way. May we understand that it's a pivot point to turn to Him and to live in our forgiveness. J.C. Ryle, and speaking of this, J.C. Ryle was a pastor in the 19th century, an Anglican pastor, a godly man. And he says this in commenting on Luke 7. There's a story in Luke 7 about this sinful woman who realizes how great her forgiveness is. And, and so she goes and she uh, washes Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. And J.C. Ryle commenting on that says, A sense of having our sins forgiven is the mainspring and lifeblood of love to Christ. 
Would the Pharisee know why this woman showed so much love? It was because she felt much forgiven. Would he know why he himself had shown his guests so little love? It was because he felt under no obligation, had no consciousness of having obtained forgiveness and no sense of debt to Christ. The only way to make men holy is to teach and preach free and full forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The secret of being holy ourselves is to know and feel that Christ has pardoned our sins. Peace with God is the only root that will bear the fruit of holiness. Forgiveness must go before sanctification. J.C. Ryle speaking of this reality. We must live in our forgiveness. That is our motivation and power for holiness and in a fresh love for God. Fresh faith and all the fruit that follows. And so, if you want to live as you ought to be, if you want to see the people of God be as they should be, then pursue living in your forgiveness. Maybe for you, you just need to memorize a verse and rehearse that verse to yourself. Maybe you just need to start your day speaking to your soul about who you are. And the first thing you ought to say is, I'm forgiven because Christ paid for my sins. That's the wonderful good news and fulfillment of Exodus is that this forgiveness comes at the price of the blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And He shed His blood and there is no more powerful or worthy thing in the whole universe than His blood, His life given for you. He paid for your sins in full through your simple faith in receiving that gift. So live in that reality that through the blood of Christ who is death and resurrection, you're forgiven and you're free in Him. And maybe you need to mem memorize the verse. There's so many verses. Let me suggest one. 2 Corinthians 5, chap uh, chapter 5, verses 17 and 21. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then 21, For our sake he made him, speaking of Jesus, God made Jesus. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And maybe that's what you need to do is just memorize that verse or another verse like it. And when you wake up in the morning, remember that verse and remember who you are, that you are first and foremost a forgiven person. Well, it, the section continues beyond that pivot point. And we see the people of God responding from that place of forgiveness and that new desire to enjoy the, the glory of God and live for it. And so we see them as a generous people. When God's people are as they should be, they are a generous people. So chapter 35, verses 4-5, through 5, Moses tells them to take up a collection. And then later on, chapter 35, 21-29, it describes and it says, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him. This is a voluntary collection, by the way. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. Let me stop there. Just think, before they had taken their earrings and donated them for what? A golden calf. And there's the pivot point. 
the confrontation, the repentance, and now they, they love the glory of God. So now they take their gold and earrings and their, their valuables and they free of their own free will, their desire, their love, their response to God. They give this to the Lord. So it continues. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution, and everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. And it got so overwhelming, actually, it says in chapter 36, that they had to tell them to stop. The craftsmen, um, they said in chapter 36, verse 5, um, actually verse 4, they, they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. They had to restrain them. What a picture. When God's people are as they should be, as they live in their forgiveness, they are generous people who want to give and have to be told, enough! We've got enough! Later on, chapter 38, it lists, and the New Living Translation translates it into modern amounts to understand. The people brought special offerings of gold totaling 2,193 pounds. And then they brought 7,545 pounds of silver. That's six, or $62 million worth of gold or more. $2 million worth of silver. It's just also a lot of gold and a lot of silver. It's incredibly generous. And that's not to mention all the textiles, all the work that went into spinning and making stuff. Those who do that by hand, you know. Uh, the fine wood, all the things given. It's a generosity that's just overwhelming and flowing out of a love for God. See, when the heart knows its forgiveness, and the heart knows the value of the glory of God, it can't help but respond with the wallet. That's a reality in Scripture. Jesus didn't have any trouble in talking about that and teaching us about that. It's a reality. He taught us in Matthew chapter 16, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Hugely important truth. And it works in both directions. For where your heart is, as we see in Exodus, there is your treasure. When your heart knows its forgiveness and the value of the glory of God, you say, here, you can have all my jewelry. Use it to make the tabernacle. That's my joy. But also here, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. It works the other direction. There's a power of our treasure giving it to the Lord. There's an ability to influence our hearts. And if we're looking to give our money 
to the Lord, the Lord's going to help with that to give our hearts to the Lord. They're connected. Treasures and hearts are connected here. That's what's going on in Exodus, and, and we need to understand that. This is part of why God designs the, the church and God's people to be the means of grace financially to promote the life and mission of the local church and the global church. And there's so much potential here. If we would get what's going on in Exodus, if we would get these things and, and be free in our love for the Lord and our faith to trust Him and to give a, a tithe, that's the principle in Scripture, 10%. It's amazing what we could do. Uh, if you could show the graphic that we have, and I've showed this before. This is uh, probably about five years old now, but it, it's ballpark accurate. Those are giving thermometers. You may have seen these for the different continents of the world. And the blue is the total that if that continent, if the believers in that continent all gave, every, everyone who was able, gave 10% of their earnings to the mission of the Lord, to the life of the church, life and mission of the church, that's what that number would be. The red numbers are what the currently, current numbers are. So rather than look at all the different continents, let's just focus on our continent, North America. And currently, it's $367 billion a year that the, that the people of God give to the purposes of God in their local church and beyond, global missions and, and char charity work and so forth throughout the world. That's a lot of money. $367 billion is a lot of money, right? And it's wonderful. But that isn't what it could be. If, again, the church tithed, everyone gave 10%, the total would be $1,445,000,000,000. That's over a trillion dollars more. <laughs> and, and if you do some calculations, that is enough money to fund a church pretty much entirely, at least as a plant, a church for every, every section of every city throughout the world and every village throughout the world. It's a church roughly per 1,000 people for the whole world. That's what that would fund. That, and that's per year, if we gave that much. So we would be able to fund, in some ways, the fulfillment of the Great Commission through local churches, simply if we talk. And I don't look at this negatively. I look at, let's look at this positively and say, oh Lord, stir our hearts, stir your people's heart, and help us to understand the, the riches of our forgiveness, the riches of the glory of God that we have in Christ. We already have and will always have. Help us not invest in what is fleeting, but what is eternal. And give freely. Now we can't control all of North America, but we can control our own lives and to some degree our own church. And just to say, uh, I'm really grateful for our church. We are, I think, very generous. And we are approaching our goal, we're just about there, of, of giving our 20% of our yearly budget, our regular general budget, to mission. Both local mission, church planting in New England, uh, but also global missions. I'm so grateful for this, and I'm grateful for those who want to give their lives to missions. Um, but there's more that we can do. If we, and, and I, I don't know the details of what the numbers are, but just based on demographics in our area and our numbers, um, if we increase to a full tithe, if everyone who was able could give a whole tithe, and I know some, many, many are already doing that, and many give more than a tithe. But if we all averaged a tithe, we would have enough money to sponsor another church plant in New England or enough money to sponsor another pastor 
or another pa couple pastoral interns for church planting every year. That's, that's the difference it would make. And so hear that as just as an encouragement to spur you on. And we give freely. We don't require it. We give freely for the same reason we see in Scripture. It's a voluntary offering. And they had to say, stop. I, I would love to get to the day where we're like, please stop. We don't know what to do with the rest of the money. Give it to some other global mission or something. May God do that. May He stir our hearts. And this is what it looks like when God's people are as they should be. They understand forgiveness. They understand the glory of God. And then next, when things are as they should be, they, we are an obedient people. So if you look through this section of Scripture, uh, you'll read, as you read as the tabernacle is constructed, there's this repetition, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. And some translations say, just as the Lord commanded. 21 times it says that. Um, just read a, a few. We're having to project. I'll move very quickly through this. So chapter 35, uh, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the Lord, what, that the Lord had commanded, so it speaks of being commanded for the work. Chapter 38, 22, uh, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 39, 1, uh, they made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. 39.7, he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded. Uh, 30, verse 32 again, verse 43 uh, says, And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. Chapter 40, uh, this Moses did as he set things up according to all that the Lord commanded him. Uh, he spread the tent as the Lord commanded him, brought in the tabernacle, set up the veil, uh, as the Lord had commanded him, set up the burnt, altar burnt offering as the Lord had commanded. Then verse 40, chapter 40, verse 32, when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And that's where it stops. And then that's the transition we'll look at shortly. 21 times, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. Contrast that with what had gone on earlier. Where God said, you are a stiff-necked and rebellious people. With the golden calf, they had done against what the Lord had commanded, clearly, in a bold and blatant way. But here, it's as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. They're doing what they were told to do. They're obeying God. They're doing as He commanded. When things are as they should be, God's people live as a forgiven people. They live as a generous people. And they live as an obedient people. Obedience is the action that comes from faith, hope, and love. When we encounter God and we come to faith in Him and we trust Him for the future and we learn to love Him and love others, we obey. Obedience is a sign of genuine faith, hope, and love. It is an essential sign. It must be there if there is genuine faith, hope, and love. Obedience matters. That's what this is teaching us. We can say we believe in Jesus and we love what he did but if our lives don't show obedience it might be that we don't really believe now our lives are going to be imperfect and their their lives are still imperfect they're still they still need provision right they still need the tabernacle system they need uh, sins to be covered but the overall tone of their lives is not rebellion and being stiff-necked it's obedience they want to obey they're pursuing obedience and when they disobey they turn and turn to Him for fresh forgiveness. Obedience matters. Obedience is a sign of, of the life of God in, in our midst. 
We're going to be looking at 1 John, actually, in the fall. We're going to start a series in 1 John, Lord willing. Um, after we do the Psalms for the summer, we'll do 1 John. 1 John is a wonderful book. And one of the things that 1 John is about is how do you know when someone really knows God? What does it look like? Do, how do I know that I really know God? And so John goes through that in this letter. And one of the things that John says, of course, is obedience. So check out what John says in chapter 2. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. So when you really know Him, you obey His commandments. John talks about the fact that we stumble and there's forgiveness. He's not saying it's perfect, but overall, look at the life of a believer, there's a desire, I want to obey, I want to walk in His commandments. And that flows from experiencing God. We know, uh, we're taught, Clearly in Scripture, the, the life of the Holy Spirit in us is what creates this love for God, this desire to obey. And so Paul says in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So the Spirit of God in, in the believer as we come to Him, He gives us power. He fills our hearts with these things, love and joy. These are, these are good things. This is the fulfillment of the law. This is obeying the commandments. And you'll see when we get to 1 John, he says the same thing. There's this love of God in us. And that's what it looks like when things are as they should be. When God's people are walking with God as they should be, there's obedience. And, and obedience is a good thing. <laughs> because His law is good. Following His ways is good. And the church is meant to be a place where there's obedience. Where there's love. Where we love God and we walk in His ways and we love each other and we love our neighbor. Oh, our world so needs an oasis amidst its brokenness. Our world is full of strife and injustice lack of love and harmony, and lack of flourishing. It's full of evil, and it can become so tiring at times. The teaching of Scripture, both here in Exodus and elsewhere, is the people of God are meant to be an oasis. And local churches throughout the world are to be oases of the goodness of God, of the kingdom of God, where there's obedience to God in His ways, where there's justice, where there's love, where there's diversity and yet unity. Where there's obedience to the ethics that God gives us, not the ones we make up our, on our own. It's to be a foretaste of the final kingdom. The church is to be that place where heaven touches earth in a profound way. And, and things are to, in a profound way, not a perfect way, but are as they should be. That's the life of God in us. That's how you know a genuine church. There's the content of faith, but there's fruit. There's love. And I'm so glad for this church. Because I see it here. I see people who care for one another. I see a people who love to be together and long to be together and feel their hearts ache, our, all our hearts ache because we can't be together. I see a people who forgive one another 
I see people who reach out to those who are different than themselves. I, 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 love, I love when we have guests and we have people that are just diverse and you watch people's love on them. And it's like not a problem. That's a sign of, of the life of God when we love those that are different, when there's that unity in diversity. I see people who spend their time and energy to, to be with each other, to help with projects, to serve. We're there for the grieving and lonely. I see people who want to share the love of Christ with their neighbors in tangible ways and then with the goodness of the Gospel. And I pray that our church in this season, alongside millions of other churches throughout the world, will be oases of the love of God and godly obedience not following the flow of the tide of culture, but standing with Jesus together to truly love and to love truth and to love Him and to show the world, whatever the results might be, what God's kingdom looks like. When it is all as it should be, God's people are an obedient people. And finally, more quickly, but more importantly, when it is all as it should be, God's people are a people of God's presence. We've talked about this quite a bit because it's throughout Exodus. So I won't spend as much time on this here, but this is a theme throughout Exodus, and it's a theme actually in Genesis, starting in chapter 1 and 2, and finishing in Revelation at the end. This is a theme of Scripture, the presence of God. It's God's plan, actually, to make Himself known to dwell with man and to dwell through man as man is to dwell on the earth, imaging His glory, overseeing His creation here. That's the grand theme of the Bible. And the problem in the Bible is we were meant for His presence. We're meant to, to live in His presence and glorify Him, reflect Him to, to others, and yet we fell from relationship with Him. And so the Bible is a, is a story about redemption and rescue and reestablishment and fulfillment of what God desired. He does that, as I just talked about, in local churches in a real way, but that's only a foretaste of the ultimate experience when Christ returns. So we are a people of God's presence. And so, in conclusion, chapter 40, we read about this. They do everything as, just as the Lord commanded. Then it says this, chapter 40, verse 33, And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. So all the work is done now. And it says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord the I Am filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whatever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So the conclusion is God descends and, and fills the tabernacle with His glory. And the glory is so intense that Moses, who's no stranger to the glory of God, who has talked with God and met with God and, and seen, as we learned about last week, his, the remnant of His glory that transformed Him, made Him glow. He's no stranger, but he can't enter because the, the glory is so intense in the tabernacle. God makes His glory known amongst His people. It's right there in the middle for everyone to see that now God is dwelling with them. And a matter of fact, they don't go anywhere unless God goes in somewhere. 
So as long as He's there, they, they camp and stay. And if the cloud lifts, they follow the cloud. They are glory seekers. They seek after God to follow Him and be with Him always. We see this elsewhere in Scripture, of course. The temple, when it's created, the very same scenario. Second Chronicles 5. Uh, they create the temple so that it's a permanent tabernacle structure. It's a permanent structure for the tabernacle. And it says, It was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison with, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised, the trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments and praise the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. So they're singing, they're worshiping God at this celebration. And it says, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. And it says elsewhere, no one could enter. The same thing once again. God, God's glory is in the midst of Israel in the, te- in the temple. And now in the New Testament church, we are to experience the same thing. When we gather together, right here, right now on a Sunday, and any Sunday, when we gather together in His name to worship, He makes Himself known. He makes His presence known among us in identifiable ways. It's to be something you can touch and experience and feel and see in, in both supernatural and natural ways. Paul talks about this. Uh, God uses the gifts of the Spirit, the various gifts, the ones that seem more supernatural, those ones that may seem more natural. He uses all these gifts to make Himself known. The gift of prophecy is one of those. So in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. All the elements of our worship are ultimately about worshiping the Lord and experiencing His presence. So in the preached Word, when we hear the Word proclaimed, it's not just me teaching or proclaiming. God visits us and we experience something beyond just what a human speaker could do. God speaks to our hearts and there's change that goes on. There's life. If it depended on me to do that, it would never happen. It would be the opposite. So when you hear the Lord and He speaks to your heart and and when there's new life and where there wasn't faith before, that's God visiting us through the means of the preaching of the Word. When we sing, He visits us. It's really amazing, especially when you have the musical gift that I have, which is very little. <laughs> I'm amazed that God meets us and visits us. Um, there there's, can be a real experience as He speaks to us and we hear His Word and it can affect us physically. It can be, affect us intellectually and, and wholly. I, I uh, had a good friend of mine, actually. Her journey of coming to faith in Christ, um, she came through the Alpha program. She was this very competent, and is this very competent woman, like a CEO um, type, and very, very in control of her emotions. She came to church for the first time, um, and we were singing. And it was uh, a different church back then where I interned, so it was a bigger church, so I wasn't aware that she was there. Uh, but she came in, and they, we were just singing, worshiping. And she started crying. And she, like, never cried. And she, it was the presence of God doing something in her heart, softening her heart. It actually freaked her out. It freaked her out so much she, like, ran out of the church um, and didn't come back that day, at least. I think she came back the next week. She experienced the presence of God among God's people. That, that's the explanation. And God visits us and dwells with us. And we are to be a people of His presence. The love that we experience here together is part of His presence being known. 
He loves to visit us and refresh us and remind us. And There's times, guys, when my week is tough and I'm not sure how God's going to answer my prayer for some sort of sense of relief. And it's often simply being here on a Sunday. I come into His presence with you guys and God speaks something. Sometimes I don't even understand what went on. I'm just all of a sudden, I'm, the, the darkness, the cloud passes and I, I got fresh faith again. And it's because God meets us here. We are a people of His presence. We are to be a people of His presence. This is God's design. So in conclusion, and in conclusion not only for this message, but for the book of Exodus, let us see what God's saying through His Word here. It's a picture of what things look like when they are as they should be. We are forgiven people. When we are as we should be, we live first and foremost as a forgiven people. We are a generous people. We are an obedient people. We are people of His presence. This is the lesson here, but really the lesson of all of Exodus and the lesson of all of the Bible. So uh, while we transition, let me just ask, has God created in you any thirst or hunger for these sorts of things? For Him and His kingdom? Maybe it's just not the level of thirst or hunger, just awareness. Like, okay, when I look at what I'm hearing, I look at my life, there's something not adding up here. I think the Lord would want you to go after that thing. And I don't have the answer for you beyond God's Word and His power and His church helping you and loving you, walking alongside of you. But what I want to suggest this morning is that you just take that thing to Him in prayer. So maybe it's just awareness of something being off. Lord, help me with this thing. I want it to change. I want to live in this relationship you call me to with your people. Maybe it's a hunger and a thirst. I want more. I don't want to be satisfied with little. I want more of the Lord. Maybe something like that. But let's take a minute. I'm going to pray and then give you a minute or two just to pray and be before the Lord. If you need to close your eyes, um, if you want to kneel, whatever you want to do, here or at home, um, I encourage you to do that. Just ask Him to work in that one area that you're aware of. Let me pray for you and then we'll take time to do that. Lord, thank You for Your Word. And thank you that you've given us these chapters, not just to inform us, but to transform us. You you want us to encounter you. And Lord, we long for things to be as they should be in our own lives and in the life of this church and through the ministry of this church. So we ask you now, Holy Spirit, to put your finger on one thing in our own lives. Give us the ability to pray and to seek you. And then Lord, we pray that you would answer our prayers and work in us and through us, we pray.